Last week we finished Romans 9, and the subject of 9 and 10, and probably into 11, has to do with the status of the Jews. And as I had said at the beginning of this, Paul's never been to Rome. He apparently knows quite a few people in Rome. He greets people there by name and so forth, but he's never actually been there. And you've got four classes of people. You've got traditional non-Messianic Jews that either have not heard the gospel or if they have heard the gospel, don't buy it. Then you've got Messianic Jews like Paul who have heard the gospel and buy it and have become believers in Yeshua. Then you have got proselytes who are Gentiles in the process of becoming Jews. And there's a process that the Jews have to bring you into Judaism, at which point it involves circumcision. And as I've said before, for an adult male, circumcision is kind of a big deal. And finally, you have got Gentiles who have heard the gospel and believed but have no intention of becoming Jews and are what we would call Christians, just plain old garden variety Christians. One of the things that's obviously going on here, just based on the letter, is there's friction among those groups. And as we said several times, the fact that the Council of Jerusalem says that Gentiles don't have to be circumcised and become Jews doesn't mean that the party of the circumcision has gone out of business. They are still of the same opinion, even though the Council of Jerusalem has said no. So, so you got all this friction. So at this point in the letter, what he's doing is he's talking to Gentiles about Jews, and specifically about Jews who are not messianic and have either not heard the gospel or have rejected Yeshua. And so that's the subject of this section of the letter. And I'm going to back up to Romans 9, and we'll pick it up in 30, and that'll give us a swoop on in. So Romans 9, 30. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Notice, whoever believes in him, not it. So a couple things. First off, when the Gentiles hear the gospel, they got no idea what is involved in becoming a Jew. All they hear is you now have the prospect of salvation. You now have the prospect of having your sins washed away in God's presence. And that's a good deal. So they simply accept it because that's what they've been told. The Jews, on the other hand, who have got Moses and know what's going on, have got a couple of problems. Problem number one is, of course, this Yeshua who is claimed to be the Messiah 
was crucified and died. And remember, those of you who were here on Shabbat uh, was talking in terms of the book of Mark where the Jews were expecting what I called at the time a stick figure Messiah. The thing in the book of Mark is there's sort of two sections in there. Section one is where he authenticates himself by his works as being the Messiah. And then section two is where he explains to them that he has to suffer and die. Well, the Jews sort of check out after section one because what they're looking for is somebody who's going to get rid of all those hairy Romans and restore Israel to its former glory as it was under David and Solomon. That's what they're looking for. So they're okay with this powerful, miracle-working guy who can heal and can multiply bread and can calm storms and all that kind of stuff. This is the guy we're expecting who's a Messiah. And then when he shifts over and says, well, I also need to suffer and die, they get a disconnect. And the analogy that I would draw in Andrew was there's a lot of Christians who believe in what I call a plastic Jesus, which is to say they pick and choose from the scriptures those parts of the gospel that fit their theology, and they just sort of ignore the rest of it. You know, stuff where eyes like a flame of fire and coming with a sword and, you know, all that. But we we just sort of ignore that. That's for somebody else. That isn't for us. In the same way, the Jews were saying, yeah, we like this guy that can calm storms and walk on water and feed multitudes and all that kind of stuff. He's our guy. But wait a minute, he died. That doesn't fit with our expectation. So what Paul is talking about here with a stumbling stone is Yeshua is that stumbling stone because Yeshua is God's son who came in power with demonstrations of power, but then he died. And so that's what causes them to stumble. And rabbis do to this day. There are prophecies about the Messiah that this guy didn't fulfill. So he can't be the Messiah. That's what Paul is talking about here. That there's a stumbling stone there because this Messiah, this Yeshua, didn't fulfill all of the stuff that they were expecting. There was no restoration of the kingdom. He didn't rule and reign with a rod of iron. He didn't do any of that stuff. Since he didn't do that stuff, he's not a legitimate Messiah. So that's what Paul is saying here at the end of 30. Whereas the Gentiles don't have any of those expectations whatsoever. All they hear is, your sins will be forgiven, and you will have life everlasting. All you got to do is trust in the God who sent you, Yeshua. So they don't have all this baggage that they have got to get rid of in order to believe the gospel, whereas the Jews have got, wait a minute, wait a minute, this doesn't fit, and so they don't believe. That's what Paul's talking about. And he's also saying that they pursued a law that would lead to righteousness. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Let me get into chapter 10 and I'll talk about that. So chapter 10 now. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. 
for being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they do not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That, I will gently suggest, gets seriously misinterpreted. First thing he's saying is they have a zeal for God, but they don't understand the plan as it was revealed by Yeshua and was completed by his death and resurrection. They don't get that part of it. They have a zeal for God. They love God. They want to serve God. They want to do that, but they don't understand. And then what he said is, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The word there in Greek is telos. And that can be one of two meanings, both of which are the same as end has in English. So end can be a terminus. The train goes to Chicago and that's the end of the line. Perfectly sound. Or you could say as you're getting on the train in Denver, the end of the trip is in Chicago. In other words, the goal toward which I am going is Chicago. So when it says the end of the law for righteousness, what it means is Christ is the goal that Moses was pointing to that says that the righteousness of humanity will be established by the death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of God, him having taken for us the punishment that is deserved. So he is the goal towards which Moses points. It does not say, and we talked about this two times ago when I was talking about our little vignette with jurisdictions where you grow up in Oklahoma that has the death penalty, so you do stuff that's against the law and you're subject to die because there's a death penalty. And you pick up and you move over to Kansas and the death penalty doesn't exist in Kansas. The things that were illegal in Oklahoma are also illegal in Kansas. There's just no death penalty attached to them. So what Paul is saying here is that the Jews did not understand the program and because they didn't understand the program, they are trying to establish their righteousness by their own works instead of understanding what God had in mind and simply trusting in the Messiah and moving from Oklahoma to Kansas, where they still do the same stuff, they still obey the same laws, they still don't eat pork, they still keep Shabbat, they do all that stuff, but now if they stumble on that, there's no death penalty. Years and years and years and years ago when I was first starting this and I was arguing with Sunday Christians on the internet, we just go around and around and around about this because they say that what happened is he is the end. The law is now terminated. There is no more law because of Yeshua. And that simply isn't true. Now, the question becomes, why did the Jews not understand? And for that, I have done a riff with you, starting with Ephesians, where Paul says, I tell you a mystery. So Ephesians 3, 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. 
to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And that mystery is explicated in 1 Corinthians 2. So I'm going to go to 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age. Remember we just talked about the rulers of this age in Ephesians. Or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. Notice we have a secret again, a mystery, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So what Paul is saying in a combination of Ephesians 3 and 1 Corinthians 2 is that what happened because of the crucifixion of Messiah was not revealed because God wanted to have his son crucified, and if the rulers of this age had understood what was going to happen, they never would have done it. The rulers of this age are, are powers and principalities and all that kind of stuff. could also be human rulers. It doesn't have to. So the idea here is the reason the Jews don't get it is because it's a mystery. And the way I've explained it in the past, God is dealing with a rebellion in heaven. You've got a third of the angels that have rebelled and gone over to Satan's side. So what God has done is he had set things up so that the death and resurrection of his own son is going to give everybody the potential to have all of their sins forgiven. That's thing one. Thing two is it also allows the Gentiles to come into the kingdom of God. Those two things are mysteries. They were not known ahead of time because, as I say, in a military operation, what you have is a deception plan. You don't tell the enemy all your plans. So the enemy, seeing, aha, this is the sun in the air. If we kill him, then the vineyard belongs to us. So they kill the sun in the air with the intention that that is going to give them the vineyard. In other words, they are expecting the same plastic Messiah that the Jews are expecting. And if we kill this guy, the vineyard belongs to us. So they arrange to have him crucified. And then, whoops, he raises again from the dead on the third day, and now all of humanity's sins are paid for, and oh, by the way, the Gentiles also get to come in. That's what the Jews don't understand. And the principalities and powers didn't understand it until after the resurrection. So the idea that you've got a whole bunch of Jews that don't see this Jesus guy as the Messiah is not something that is hard to understand. And what Paul says in a combination of Ephesians 3 and 1 Corinthians 2 is that concept, that information, that knowledge was hidden by God from before the foundation of the world so that when 
had the rebellion in heaven, he had a plan to redeem everything. Back to Romans now. The fact that the Jews don't understand this is completely comprehensible because the powers and principalities didn't understand it. As Paul now is talking about his kinsmen, the Jews, the first thing he's saying is the stumbling stone, they just cannot comprehend that their Messiah had to die. Hence, since this guy Jesus did die, he can't be the Messiah. And rabbis today will say, Christianity is a wonderful religion, but uh, this guy's not God. Nice Jewish boy, did all sorts of stuff, but God, no, sorry, that doesn't compute. And oh, by the way, he didn't fulfill the prophecies of the Messiah. And of course, what Christianity believes is there are two advents. The first advent is where he comes and dies and pays for the sins. The second advent, we do the eyes like a flame of fire and armies in white robes and all that kind of stuff. That's the next phase which will happen in the second coming. So we're now in chapter 10, and now we're in verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that a person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead? But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Yeshua is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay, now he's quoting lots of stuff here. Let's start with the person who does the commandments shall live by them. I understand that this is been sort of welded into Christian's head, and Paul is repurposing a scripture that in context means something slightly different. He's an apostle, and he gets to do that. But let's go back to the original and see what the original actually says. And the original is back in Leviticus 18. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. And this is Leviticus. They're still in the wilderness, right? They're getting ready to go into the land. And what Moses is saying is, all right, you came out of Egypt, and you knew how they operated. Don't do that. You're going into Canaan. They're going to do some stuff, and the reason that I am dispossessing them and giving you their land is because I'm really unhappy with what they're doing. So don't learn from them either. But then thing two is he says, I want you to keep all of my statutes and commandments so that you may live. 
the translation, if a person does them, he shall live by them. The way that reads to most English speakers is those will be the rules by which you live. And that's true. But what it really means is if you follow God's rules, you will live, as opposed to what's going to happen to the Canaanites and what happened to the Egyptians. They didn't follow my rules. They fell into violence, murder, and death, and so I had to deal with them. And so I'm dealing with the Canaanites by dispossessing them, and I'm telling you, everybody in there, you're going to slaughter. So this idea of a person does them as you live by them, what it's saying is, if you do what I tell you to do, you will have life. You will not be dispossessed. I will fight for you. When your enemy tries to run you over, I will be your sword and your shield. I will drive them out before you, but I won't drive them out too fast lest the place be overtaken by bears. What he's saying is if you do my way, you will live. If you fall into the ways of the Canaanites, you're going to die. And then who will ascend into heaven and who will descend into the abyss? That's a quote from Deuteronomy 30. So Deuteronomy 30, starting in verse 11. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. So what Moses is saying there on God's behalf is these laws that I have given you are for your benefit. If you walk in them, they will give you life, they will give you prosperity, they will give you length of days. You will have a good society if you follow my laws. And oh, by the way, my laws are not that hard. And of course, we all know from lots of places, but Paul knows the law. But what he discovers is that his flesh rises up against it. And even though he knows what is right to do, and he agrees that the law is good and the law is life-giving, even though all of that, he still rises up in his flesh and sins periodically. So it is not the case that the Torah is something that is impossible. All of the rules of Torah are reasonable. The problem is we're not. So the Torah says... Don't lust after your neighbor's wife. But, oh, man, she's really good-looking, and she's really giving me the eye, and she's really interested, and, well, you know. We all go through those things, and we all struggle with those temptations. And we all periodically fail. That doesn't mean that the law isn't intended to give life. And what Paul is saying back here in Romans is he's repurposing the Scripture. He's not saying that the Torah, Scripture, the way it was written is wrong. He's simply saying, oh, by the way, if you put Messiah in there instead of law, it also works. Let me give you an example. If you go back to the Psalms, in every place it mentions rock, the word rock. If you substitute Messiah or Yeshua for rock, you discover that all those Psalms make perfect sense. So what Paul is saying here is I am taking commandments here, as described in Deuteronomy, and I am substituting for Yeshua where it says commandment, and oh, by the way, it makes sense. And then finally, of course, he says that the sacrifice of Yeshua is good for everyone. 
not just the Jew, but also the Greek. In other words, not just the Jew, but also the Gentile. His sacrifice pays for the sin of the entire world. The only thing you have to do to appropriate that, you've got to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. And what you have to do is you have to change residence from Oklahoma to Kansas, which is to say, I no longer live in Oklahoma. I now live in Kansas, and the governor of Kansas, Yeshua, is now my governor. I will do what he says. Oklahoma still exists. Oklahoma hasn't gone away. It's just that you have transferred your residence from one to the other. But when you do transfer your residence, you have to become a citizen of Kansas. You have to say, I will abide by Kansas's laws. Kansas's governor is my governor, and I have no more allegiance to Oklahoma. In other words, if you go from Oklahoma to Kansas, but you maintain your allegiance and loyalty to Oklahoma, you're an illegal alien, you know, a little metaphor. If you confess with your mouth the issue is Lord, which is to say I have moved from Oklahoma to Kansas and the governor of Kansas, Yeshua, is now my governor and I will obey him. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, which is to say, oh, by the way, not only is he my governor, my Messiah, my leader, my Lord, you know, whatever you want to call that, he is also able to forgive my sins. And that's because he was raised from the dead in accordance with the scriptures. And then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved is, of course, a quote from Joel. All right, so verse 14. But how are they to call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Messiah. So what he's saying is, remember we talked earlier about mysteries. If the powers and principalities didn't understand what was happening, how can a simple human being understand unless someone explains it to him? And what Paul is saying here is somebody has to tell him, and that somebody who is going to tell him has got to be sent. Because in the absence of having it explained to you, there's no reason why you should believe this, understand it, or anything else. Paul is a poster child. Remember, Paul got knocked off his ass on the way to Damascus. And Yeshua looked down at him on the ground and said, Saul, that's how he got sent. Now, I will tell you what Jews and Christians theologians believe. And what they believe is the way you are sent is someone else who has been sent lays hands on you. It's what's called apostolic succession in the Christian church. The idea that somebody who has been sent knows you, lays hands on you, and sends you, if you will. That's what ordination is. All churches that I know of, which isn't exhaustive, believe that way. Certainly all the liturgical churches do. There's an ordination process for priests and ministers, which involves the laying on of hands. And Paul says... Remember, don't lay hands on anybody too soon. Figure out who they are and what they've made of before you lay hands on them. 
And the Jews do the same thing to ordain rabbis. So they get somebody who's decided he wants to be a rabbi and he gets trained up and I don't know how they work it, but at the end of the process, existing rabbis will lay hands on him and ordain him. And by the way, my ordination came from Don Wiedemann through Ray Harrison. I don't have any idea whether Don Wiedemann was authorized, but he said he was. And 20 years later, I guess it stuck. But yes, that's what he's talking about here. And as I say, when he talks to Timothy, at Timothy, I think, where he says, don't lay hands on anybody prematurely. Make sure that these folks are in fact called. And when they are, then lay hands on them and send them out. Verse 18, but I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the earth. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And again, we talked about that earlier. The idea that Israel periodically falls into apostasy and violence and injustice and God has to deal with them is endemic to the entire history of the nation. And this is simply another case because Paul is writing before 70 AD. And one of the things that we have said many, many times is Yeshua came to Israel as a prophet. And the watershed is Matthew 13. Before Matthew 13, his basic message is repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. In Matthew 12, what we have is they attributed the works that he did to Satan. At that point, we have the little soliloquy about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And after that, Yeshua switches from plain talk and a call to repentance to speaking in parables, which is, again, a standard prophetic mechanism among the prophets who get all the ink in the Bible. They start off by calling for repentance. By the time a prophet is sent, it's probably too late. Israel doesn't repent. The prophet then starts speaking in parables, and the next thing you know is you're up to your hips in Babylonians or Assyrians or Romans. So what Paul is saying here is what's going on with Israel is the same thing that's been going on with Israel ever since there's been an Israel, ever since the time of the judges. Israel has lost track of what it means to follow God. God has sent them a prophet, in this case Yeshua. They didn't listen to him. They killed him, just like they tried to kill Jeremiah and half a dozen others. And so what's going to happen next is they are going to go into exile. Paul is not saying all this. I'm saying that that's what's going on in this paragraph. Yeah, they heard. Yeah, they were given the word. Yeah, they were given warning. No, they didn't listen. So dot, dot, dot. Paul doesn't say it, but we know from history that the next thing that's going to happen is the Roman exile, which looks just like the Babylonian exile, which looks just like the Assyrian exile, and so forth. Chapter 11. I asked then, has God rejected his people? By no means. 
For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left. They seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And again, he talked about that back when he was talking about Abraham in chapters 5 and 6. I'm not going to go through that. The point I am making here is all of these Hebrews that have been sent into exile have been killed, have died, have died in the wilderness, have died in exile, and so forth, God has promised that they will be raised from the dead. And he will then bring them into their land, and he will write his law on their heart where it's supposed to be. So the fact that you have got Hebrews being killed by various invading armies throughout history doesn't mean that those people are lost. God hasn't lost them. They're going to be raised from the dead. He's going to bring them into their land. There will be a judgment in that, and I don't know how that's going to work out. That's his job and not mine, way above my pay grade. But the scripture says they're coming back. Verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So the idea here is Israel as a nation, in the case of the Roman exile, has fallen into baseless hatred where they can't get along. Too many scorpions in one bottle. So God says, you guys are going into exile. And in order to make sure that happens, I am going to harden your heart and I'm going to put a spirit of stupor on you because you're going into exile. All right, let's stop there. I want to pick it up next time at Romans 11, 11 because what's going to happen is Paul is going to talk about being grafted in. I'll give you a little preview of that. I was listening to Ron Dart the other day and he could have been my teacher, I could have been his. He says things a lot better than I do most of the time, but we agree on theology pretty much completely. One of the things that he says when we get to this grafting in part, and I'll talk about this in some more detail next time, is if God had not gotten the majority of the nation of Israel out of the way, Christianity would have wound up as an obscure sect of Judaism and would not have spread throughout the world like it did because the Jews of the circumcision party insisted that there was a mechanism to bring Gentiles into the kingdom. That mechanism, which involves circumcision, is very difficult for an adult male to accept. The gospel doesn't look nearly so good when they come at you with a knife. So in order for the gospel to spread like it did, lots of Israel had to be gotten out of the way. And that's what he's talking about in the grafted in. When you graft new branches into a tree, one of the things you've got to do is prune some of the old branches so they don't cast shade on the new branch and the new branch never takes off. 
which I thought was really a good analogy. You got this big bushy vine that's Israel. You don't just staple a few new shoots in there and expect them to take off. You got to clear out some of the other stuff so the new shoot has sun and water and doesn't have to compete. And that's one of the things that God does when he sends Israel into exile. I thought that was a good analogy. Intellectually, a bunch of them have been gotten out of the way because they regard Christianity as a different religion that is not competitive with Judaism. But you also have the Roman exile where all of Israel, for good reason, has been sent into exile. In other words, they were ripe for exile anyway. And the fact that they are then exiled and scattered reduces their influence as a force to compete with Christianity, which at this point in the exercise, Christianity is the grafted-in branch that needs to grow and flourish. That doesn't mean he has either lost track of or forgotten the original branches. They're all coming back too, but that process is going to be 